Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Samuel was the first of Israel's great prophets and the last of the judges. Born to Hannah, who was barren, but had prayed for a son. She gave him to the priest Eli, so he would be taught to serve the Lord. As a child, Samuel heard from God that he was going to be a prophet and a judge. In fact, God spoke so clearly to him that he thought it was Eli talking. His reputation preceded him, and he became a priest and mediator for God to the people. But after complaining for many years that they wanted an earthly king like other nations, God let the Israelites have their way. Samuel anointed the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. In his farewell speech, the aged Samuel warns the people of Israel to give up their idols and serve the true God. One of the last things Jesus did before he died was to eat with his disciples, his friends. They sat around a table and talked and shared food and ideas and hopes and probably even some fears about the future. I love the dinner table. It's a place of refuge in our busy lives, a constant in all the change. We gather around the table and we share about all that went wrong with our day and remind each other about all that is right in the world. Some of the most intimate conversations I've had are leaning over the table and looking into the faces of friends and families. The dinner table is a sacred space where we let our guard down even just for a few moments to enjoy good food and honest conversations. Most of the friends that I've met over the years, the relationship started here. I've heard all of their stories over a basket of bread or a cup of coffee. More and more, I realize that everyone at the table is equal. There is no ego, no status, or rank. Really great meals are when everyone sets their weapons down before they sit. Like lions at the watering hole, having to let their guard down to quench their thirst. Here, no one is taller or smarter or, or better than. Everyone comes with one thing in mind, to be refreshed. It's one of the most popular images of Jesus. Him at the table with his friends, arms outstretched, as if to say, come, eat, drink, Everyone is welcome.
Good morning, everybody. It's nice to see you. I know what you're thinking. You said I came to church this morning and I was hoping Pastor Ashwin was going to be preaching. I was hoping that Pastor Ashwin would be preaching. But ladies and gentlemen, Ashwin is not here. Ashwin is having a baby. Uh, yeah. I, uh, I called him late last night and I said, what's up? And he says, we're still waiting. Somebody else told me they called him this morning and they're still waiting. So maybe today on August the 9th, is it, yeah, maybe today their third little boy is going to show up. That doesn't sound easy, does it? Three little boys. Uh, but a bully, we need to be praying for them. And I know that your good wishes are, are, are with them. Now, this summer, we're doing a series of messages on some Bible stories, some Bible stories, and we're looking for that intersection where the stories of the Bible characters intersect with our story, where their faith journey intersects with our faith journey. And so far, we've had a wonderful time in this series. Now, Ashram was going to be preaching on Samuel, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, this morning, but I am going to preach on a character uh, from the book that bears Samuel's name. And uh, today we're going to look at the life of a man by the name of um, um, <laughs> Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. On the count of three, I want you all to say Mephibosheth. One, two, three. Mephibosheth, one more time. It's an amazing story. You know, maybe you're new to faith or you're um, new, to, new to our church and you're a little self-conscious because you don't know all the Bible stories. You know, you never went to Sunday school and people talk about all these stories. And I want to tell you that this morning, there were Christians, people have been Christians for years or gone to this church. They don't know the story of Mephibosheth. So we're all on the same starting ground this morning. And so we're going to read his story from 2 Samuel chapter 9. And I think it's going to come up on the screen here behind us. And just follow along as I read, listen, this obscure but precious and beautiful story in the Bible. Chapter 9, verse 1. David asked, Is there anyone still left in the house of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba, your servant? He replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, he is in the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Jehoshaphat, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, everybody say Mephibosheth. <laughs> Your servant, he replied, don't be afraid. David said to him, 
For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Doesn't that make you sad to hear somebody say that about themselves? Doesn't only call himself a dog, he calls himself a dead dog. Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, everybody say Mephibosheth, grandson of your master will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servants to do. So Mephibosheth ate at the king's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. And he was crippled in both feet. Everybody say Mephibosheth. To really understand this story, I'm going to take a, a prolonged period of time to give you a little bit of background, but this background will nourish the story in your mind and make it make sense. David, who, who was the king, was originally just an obscure little shepherd boy looking after his father's sheep. But he is catapulted to national prominence when he has his little skirmish with this Goliath you might have heard about. His name was um, Goliath. Goliath. Everybody thought Goliath was too big to kill. Uh, the strongest soldiers in Saul's army, his most valiant warriors, were scared spitless of Goliath. Everybody thought he was too big to kill. But David, who comes uh, to visit his brothers who are in Saul's army, hears uh, Goliath railing against his God. He doesn't think that Goliath is too big to kill. He has a different perspective. Goliath thinks he's too big to miss. And so he goes up with his little uh, stones. He gathers five stones from the book Cherith the brook Cherith, people have asked, well, why did he take five stones? Well, the Bible says Goliath had four brothers. And you know how brothers stick together. So he takes his five stones and he just puts one in his slingshot and he slays the giant Goliath. He chops off his head and David becomes famous in Israel. Through this event, David meets Saul's son, Jonathan. And almost instantly, David and Jonathan become incredible friends. They hunt together. They shoot arrows together. They, they do this together. They do that together. They are inseparable friends. Would you be surprised if I was to tell you that the friendship of David and Goliath is the greatest friendship 
in the Bible. Those two, they got on like a house on fire. If you have a really, really, really good friend, how rich you are, and they were so very, very close. The Bible tells us two things about their friendship. Number one, it tells us that they loved each other more than they loved themselves. The second thing we are told in uh, 2 Samuel 1.26 is that, um, yeah, they, uh, they got along better with each other than they got along with their wives. There's a land uh, minefield if I've ever seen one. There was more chemistry, there was more connection between them than their wives. Do you ever watch uh, the movie Top Gun? Love that movie. Tom Cruise uh, in his F-14 Tomcat, together with his co-pilot Goose, are up in the air fighting these Russian MiGs. Uh, I saw it in 3D once, just, just an amazing movie. The chemistry between Maverick, Tom Cruise, and Goose is unbelievable. They fight in that cockpit like hand and glove. They know what the other is thinking. They, they're always one step ahead because they click so much. And even when they're not riding their, or flying their F-14 Tomcat, they're on their motorcycles and they're doing this together and that together. They get along so well with each other. Meanwhile, Tom Cruise has this girlfriend, um, the blonde, Kelly um, McGillis, you know. And that's a relationship that just doesn't work. I mean, they're together, but it, it, it almost wrecks the movie. There's just no, there's no click there. It wasn't by design of the movie makers. Ah, but when Goose and Maverick are together in the air, it's, it's, it's pure poetry. And I think that's what the Bible is saying, that they got along better with each other than they got along with their wives. Uh, one day they're talking and they say, no, we should, we should make a vow together. We should make a promise to each other. It's very simple. It's found in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 14 to 16, and then in the last chapter, or the last verse of the book, I think it's chapter 40, or verse 42, 44, something like that. You can read about it later if you're interested. Very simple promise they make to each other. You know, we, we enjoy this kindness together. We're going to always be kind to uh, each other, but let's spread the love. Let's make sure that we're always kind to our descendants. I'll be kind to your family, Jonathan. David says, uh, uh, I'll be kind to your family, David. We're going to spread the love. And for a number of years, they enjoy their friendship. One day, something terrible happens. One day, Jonathan and his father David are killed in battle. J Jonathan and his father Saul, excuse me, are killed in battle. And when David gets the news, he is wrecked. And the Bible makes a point of saying how much David mourns when his friend dies. Maybe some of you have had that experience, a good friend dies, and it's, it's painful. To make a long story short, David, upon the death of Saul, becomes king in his place, 
And um, the early years of David's reign are very busy. To begin with, he's involved in a lot of military campaigns, fighting all of Israel's enemies. That takes energy and time. And added to that, he's a new king. There's things to administer and things to do. And he kind of forgets the vow and the promise that he made to his friend Jonathan. Maybe it's not so much that he forgot the promise. Maybe it was just he was just busy. Life happens, and he's distracted. But one day there's a lull, a lull in all of his battling, and he has time to reflect and think, and he remembers. He remembers the promise that he made to Jonathan, and so he says to his staff, um, you know, I made a promise one day. Is there anybody left in Jonathan's family to whom I can show kindness to? And they say, yeah. Funny you should ask. There is one person who's a descendant of David. Now we're going to stop here for a moment, just catch our breaths a little bit. I want to ask you this question. You ever made a promise to someone? Might have been a promise you made to yourself. Isn't it possible that sometimes promises we make to ourselves are just as binding? I'm wondering if you ever went to a funeral of a good friend, someone you really respected, a friend, and he died. And at the funeral, you looked at his kids there, and you looked at his wife, and you said in your spirit, to honor my friend, I'm going to stay in touch with this family. When I go to a Flames game, I'm going to take the boys with me. If I go hiking, I'm going to, I'm going to call his, his wife, the widow, and see if there's anything I can do to help. Or maybe you're a woman here and, and you had a girlfriend who died and she had daughters and you said, to honor my friend, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay in touch with the girls, take them out for coffee, bring ca casseroles over. And life then happened. You got busy. I mean, you had your own family to look after, right? And it's always been in the back of your mind. But you've never, you've never followed through. Or maybe it's been something completely different. I'm wondering if, if there was a cause that really stirred your heart and you said, I'm going to do something about this. Or there was a ministry or a need or something to volunteer. And you were stirred and you, and you said, I, you know, I'm going to. And, and you're busy and distracted and you've never followed through. I'm not here this morning to make anybody feel guilty or lay a trip on you, but I've got to believe in a room this size, there have been promises that have been made, there's been no carry through, and this is just a gentle little nudge. Hey, I, I said I was going to do that. I, I'm going to follow through. And that's what, what David does. He says he's going to follow through. Um... And so he asked this question of his staff. Who is left? Who is left of the house of Jonathan that I can show kindness to? Now that's curious language. Who is left? Who is left? Would you allow me just to take another moment to give just a little more background? You see, when power transitioned from King Saul to King David, not everybody thought this was a good idea. In fact, Saul had three brothers who said, no, 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 no. We're the reigning family. We are going to be king, uh, not you, David. And so they led a rebellion, a coup against David, not a C-O-O, coup, C-O-U-P-E um, with one. Does it have one of those little marks on it, coup? I think there's a, 
Um, and so there's a lot of death and dying because um, uh, Jonathan's uncles think they should be king. And, and so um, a, lot of, a lot of the family, in fact, all of the, almost all of the family has been obliterated. Uh, so when David says that there's there anybody left, he's wondering, is there anybody left? And he's surprised when his staff tell him, Ziba, when Ziba tells him, yeah, there's one guy. And his name is Mephibosheth. He lives east of the Jordan. And I don't know if you need to know this or not, King, he's crippled in both feet. I want to introduce to you Mephibosheth. So far, all you know is that he is crippled in both feet. I want to tell you how that happened. I want to tell you four things about Mephibosheth. Second Samuel, or sorry, First Samuel chapter four and verse four tells us that when Mephibosheth was five days, five years old, he was five years old. He was playing out in the yard. And one day there's a raiding party, a raiding party that comes to his village and Mephibosheth's caregiver, his nurse, grabs him to take flight from the raiding party. There's chaos everywhere, so she just grabs him and flees and in the process of grabbing him, she drops him. Have you ever dropped a kid before? It's a little traumatic, but 99% of the times they cry a little bit and they're okay. But when Mephibosheth's caregiver dropped him, he broke both of his legs. Normally not a problem. Children often break limbs. You simply set them, immobilize them. They mend quickly because they're young bones. And six months later, the kid is off and about, and you hardly ever know they were injured. But this was different. They were fleeing. And they were not only fleeing in the days to follow, they were hiding and Mephibosheth never got the proper medical attention that he needed. And because the bones were not set, they started to heal, but they healed all in the wrong way. Days follow, and the poor little guy never recovers from that, and he is crippled for the rest of his life. Imagine what that must have been for him. You know, people, we often read the Bible stories and we read them kind of matter-of-factly, but we need to interject some of the emotion of the things that were happening to these people. Imagine this little boy and the trauma of what he went through. But that wasn't all that happened to him. The next thing we are told about him was that his, his father Jonathan and his grandfather Saul are killed, so he's all alone in the world. The next thing we are told is that he lives in a place called Lodabar. Lodabar. Lodabar means no pasture. No pasture means no sheep. No sheep means no livelihood. It was a desolate, isolated desert area east of the Jordan River. And almost certainly, Mephibosheth lives in poverty, unable to support himself, living all alone. One more thing you need to know about him. He lived in fear every day of his life. 
Nobody really knew who he was, but he knew he, who he was. He knew that he was part of Saul's family, and he knew that Saul's family had led a revolt against King David, and he believed with all of his, far, with all of his heart that if they ever found out who he was, the new administration would come and they would kill him. That's what he believed. He lives in fear every day of his life. You can't lose much more in life and still be alive. This young man has suffered loss after loss, and he is devastated. And one day there's a knock. There's a knock at the door, and he goes, and it's the king's entourage. Are you Mephibosheth? Maybe. The king wants to see you, and I'm convinced on the ride to Jerusalem he was terrified, and we know he was terrified, because one of the first things that David says to him when he comes into his presence is, Mephibosheth, chill. Do not be afraid. The next thing that happens is heartbreaking for me, because the next thing that Mephibosheth says is what do you want, O king, with a dead dog like me? Doesn't that break your heart? In the Bible, whenever the Bible refers to a dog, it's always a negative and a bad thing. In the Bible, dogs are ravaging, scravaging beasts who terrorize, and they're, they're yucky in the Bible. Now, I want to stop here because some of you have dogs, family pets, and they're part of the family. Leanne and I um, are a pet family too, and we love our pets. The Bible is not talking about your Fluffy or your Fido. It's not talking about domestic dogs, okay? So no hate mail. I'm simply telling you that in the Bible, dogs are on the bottom. A dead dog like me. My temptation is to say, Mephibosheth, you know, don't talk like that. Mephibosheth, God loves you. And here is a scripture verse to make you feel a little better. I wonder if David... Um, wanted to say that to him. Oh, Mephibosheth, you shouldn't call yourself a dead dog. In fact, I have a psalm for you. I've written some psalms, and here's a psalm for you. I hope you feel better. <laughs> when people have been traumatized, when people have suffered loss, and when people are feeling on the very bottom of the bottom, you cannot talk them out of low self-esteem. You cannot talk yourself out of low self-esteem. It's the truthful, honest way of how you feel. And it's good for those of us who care for people to understand that and acknowledge that. David had a better plan. And this was his plan he was going to change, listen, listen, he was going to change Mephibosheth's status. He says to Mephibosheth, I've got some good news for you and I've got some good news for you. What do you want to hear first? <laughs> Mephibosheth, your grandfather, I highly respected him. 
your grandfather Saul. He was the king. He had houses and lands. He had mansions. He had palaces. He had country homes. Your grandfather Saul, he had, he had uh, gardens and he had farms and he had wineries. And Mephibosheth, they're all rightfully yours. I'm going to restore to you, Mephibosheth, everything that your grandfather Saul owned, and it's going to be given to you. And Mephibosheth, he couldn't believe his earballs. David is getting wound up because he's really enjoying this. He's getting excited. He says, you know, there's something else I want to do to show kindness to you, Mephibosheth. I see you have a, mil- a mobility problem. I'm going to take care of that. In fact, I'm going to arrange for 35 servants who are going to, on, on, on your grandfather's estates, they're going to harvest all the crops, they're going to work in the winery, they're going to maintain all of your houses. There are going to be 35 servants at your beck and call who are going to serve you every day for the rest of your life. And again, he can't believe his earballs. After a lifetime of everything going wrong in his life, he was experiencing the kindness of the king, and he wasn't even sure where it came from. Oh, and again, David, is he just getting, he's enjoying this. This is fun. Mephibosheth, there's one, one more thing. I want you, henceforth now, and even forevermore, to come to my table and eat at my table. I want you to be with me. I want you to gather together with my children and be together every day of your life for the rest of your life. I want you to eat at my table. And Mephibosheth doesn't know how to respond. And David says to Mephibosheth, you know what this means? This means that if you come to my table and eat with my children, that means that you are part of my family. I know you were afraid that I was going to kill you because you were part of Saul's family, but I have taken you away from that family. That family is dead to you. They are gone. And now, Mephibosheth, you will be part of my family And God takes an an orphan and makes him a son. Oh, he loves to do that, to take orphans and make them sons and daughters. And he draws him close into his family. We love the stories, and there are so many of them in literature and so many of these stories in history of people who are taken from the bottom and brought to a beautiful place, rags to riches, Prisons to presidencies. Do you remember the story of Nelson Mandela? 21 years in a South African prison for fighting apartheid. And one day he's released from that prison to become the president of South Africa. There's this Truth and Reconciliation Commission and uh, he forgives all of the people who put him in jail and he becomes the president. Those stories are th- thrilling. Lech Walesa in, in Poland, who actually believed that through his labor union, he could bring down the Polish communist government. He was just an electrician in the shipyards of Gdansk, I think it was. They threw him in jail. He thought he would rot there. A little while later, Lech Walesa 
becomes the president of Poland. What a thrilling story. We read about these stories in the Bible. Joseph is in prison for seven long years. He thinks he's going to rot there. And in the space of one day, Joseph is released from that prison to become one of the most powerful people in Egypt. We know the story of Daniel, a slave, who in the course of one day becomes one of the most powerful men in uh, Babylon. Those stories thrill us. But I want you to know that that is your story. And that is my story. And that is our story because God loves to take us from the depths of our despair and he loves to take us in our hopelessness and take us to a new place and to show us kindness every day and bring us into his family. That's what he does for us. It's amazing and it's thrilling. There's some of you, and I, I want to talk directly to one or two of you. You've been thinking about following God or becoming a Christ follower, but the one question that you always buck up against is, you know, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? And it keeps you from faith because you're, you're searching for this question, what do I have to do? But my friend, I want to tell you, it's not about what you have to do, but it's what God wants to do for you. It's about the mercy and the grace and the tenderness and the forgiveness and the hope and the joy. It's all about what he wants to do for you. And all you have to do is accept the kindness he's dying to show to you. And all you have to do is love let him love you. You have no idea the kindness that God wants to show to you. I can't imagine Mephibosheth saying, you know, I can't imagine Mephibosheth saying, well, that's all, you know, that's really nice, so can you want to do all that for me? But, you know, I live in Lodabar, and I know it's a desert and it's desolate. But it's my desert. It's my desolation. And yet people do that all the time. The Bible says that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. I want you to get the pic this picture in your mind. It's dinner time at the king's table. The king calls his family to dinner. And one by one, his family comes to sit at the king's table. First of all, there's Absalom. Absalom, with the long hair, remember him? Fidel uh, Sassoon, good looks. He's handsome. And he comes strutting into the dining room, and he sits at the king's table. Next, Adonijah comes. He has muscles on his muscles, handsome. And he comes and sits down in his place. Chileab, uh, GQ good looks, the king's, one of the king's great sons. He comes and sits at the king's table. Tamar, his daughter, she's drop-dead gorgeous. She comes in her flowing gowns, and she sits at the king's table. Nathan, one of his sons, comes, sits at the king's table. He had 15 children. Uh, we didn't have a table big enough. <laughs> Solomon, clever and witty, he comes, and he sits on the end. And all of a sudden, you hear this, Clop, 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 
clop, clop, as Mephibosheth enters and he sits at the king's table. But I want you to notice that when he sits at the king's table, his lameness is covered by the king's tablecloth. And he is just like everybody else at the king's table. Some of you feel like emotional cripples. You've had very significant losses in your life and you don't think you can go on and you don't think you can cope and all you can see in yourself is your brokenness and you don't know what to do, but I want to tell you that at the king's table, all of your brokenness is covered over here. Some of you feel like social cripples, that nobody loves you, or worse yet, you feel, you feel like a moral cripple, that you've done so many bad things that God could never, ever love you, but you're covered. We're all covered at the king's table because the Bible says the blood of the Lord Jesus covers us all. We're all covered. Yeah. Let, let yourself be covered by the grace of God. You have no idea what he wants to do for you in kindness and mercy and hope. Oh, we Christians, you, you know, we dri <laughs> it drives me crazy sometimes. <laughs> we are so good at putting people in categories, aren't we? If you believe this, we put you in this category. And if you believe this differently from what I believe, we put you in this category. Some of you, you believe this, we put you in this category. We're always in the best category, right? Or we, the way pe we judge people the way they behave. If they, they behave this way, we put them over here. If they behave that way, they put, we put them over there. No, we always, I mean, we've got this behavior thing nailed. We're all the same. We're brothers and sisters in the family of God and we're covered by his table experiencing the grace of God every day and we dare not judge anybody else because our brothers and sisters sit at the table with us. I'm finished. But, but, the, the, this summer series is called Living Out God's Story. Living in God's Story. So I'm going to ask you to do something. This is not going to be one of those sermons that you listen to and you forget about and go home and you're done. No, you're going to do something. Here's what you're going to do. At your table, you are going to invite a neighbor. A neighbor you've known for a long time, you are going to invite them to come to your table. Or... You're going to invite a new Canadian neighbor. This would put a smile on the face of God. You are going to find a new Canadian neighbor, and you're going to invite them to your table, literally, physically, to your table. You're going to find someone who's lonely, someone who's hurting. We're not talking about your best friends. We're talking about somebody that God is going to put on your heart. Because there are people out there, we're surrounded by in a city of lonely people who are desperately looking for connection. And you, are, after prayerful consideration, are going to invite them 
to your table. I need five volunteers to join me at the table. Right now, five of you, any of you, front, back, right now, get up out of your seats. I need five of you to come to my table. Let's go. I've got one young man. I need four more. I've got two. I need two more. I've got four, five, uh, one more. Sir, comes. Come sit at my table. Come sit at my table. I think we were going to be one short, but there's always room for one more, right? There's always room for one more. You just put a little bit more water in the soup. <laughs> Have a chair. Have a chair. Hey, we need another chair. Hey, come sit over here. I'm going to stand at the dinner table. Did you know that there is a holy piece of furniture in your house? Holy means something which is sacred and it's set apart for God. Something holy is something that is sacred and set apart from God. You have a holy piece of furniture in your house, and it's not your leather couches. It's not your lazy boys. It's not your china cabinet or your bed. It's your kitchen table. You never realized that. You just thought it was your kitchen table. It is holy unto the Lord, and it is meant to be shared with people all around you who are neighbors or who are hurting and who is lonely. When was the last time you shared your table with somebody? And in sharing your table, you share your lives with people. It's something that Jesus wants you to do. In the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, it talks about hospitality again and again and again. But we're sophisticated, you know. We're busy. We don't do that anymore. The Bible does not talk about entertaining in entertaining, everything has to be prim and proper and just right. And it's interesting, isn't it? In our society, eating has become entertainment. But there is a world of difference between entertaining and hospitality. Hospitality means you come into my house, you take us just as we are, we love each other, we share our stories, we share our joys, we share our pains we encourage one another. We love one another. Would you live out this sermon and share your table with somebody else? And you will do, be doing the work of God. And you will put a smile on his face. Now... I've got some good news for you and some bad news for you. There is no food. <laughs> but we have three juice, ocean spray, cranberry. This isn't Merlot, you guys. It's three berry, ocean spray juice. Please have a drink and thank you for uh, volunteering this morning. And God bless you. Thank you from co for coming. And uh, make a difference out there. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.